This is unstructured. Today, I have a truly remarkable guest. I, I honestly was not familiar with him before this point. His name is Jeffrey Gurian. He is a remarkable comedian, former dentist, connector. I would almost call him, Jeffrey, are you familiar with the band uh, Velvet Underground? Uh, that was Andy Warhol's band, wasn't it? Well, yeah, he supported them as uh, Lou Reed and John Cale, etc. But there was an old joke about the uh, first album that not many people bought the first album, but everyone who did started a band. Oh, really? I kind of feel like if you don't know who you are, you're not a comedian. I think somebody <laughs> even told you that. Yeah, Ted Alexandro said it, and Nick Kroll. They were all very kind. They all said stuff like that. Bob Saget said it, Nick Kroll said it, and uh, a bunch of people said it. But he in particular said, if, you're not, if you don't know me, you can't be in comedy. <laughs> It's really remarkable that you've managed to take this path because from what I understand, when you were growing up, you were a, a very serious stutterer and we're not even able to really maintain a good conversation without, you know, stuttering. How yeah, did you I, I couldn't even say my name. I started stuttering when I was about six or seven years old and I stuttered through my 20s and probably even into my 30s. It wasn't as bad, but I would block. But when it was bad in school, growing up, I couldn't even say my name. I could never say Gurian. Most stutterers have a very hard time saying their own names. And mm. the reason that, that I feel is the cause of that is because your name is your identity. And if you're not happy with who you are, you can't present that to people. And I remember very clearly when I went to college, I made myself run for the president of the class, of the freshman class. I came into a, a, a big city college that had seven different high schools fed into it. I only knew the people from my own high school. And because I couldn't say my name, I couldn't ask people to vote for me. But I ran, I ran for election because I told myself that if I could win, I wouldn't have to stutter anymore because it would show me that people liked me. I think I had some kind of inferiority complex. I'm not sure where it came from, but I, I, I didn't feel good about myself, I guess. And I thought it had to do with how people felt about me because I realized one day that I didn't stutter when I was alone. And this applies to many stutterers. And mm. in, this in, in this country alone, there are more than 3 million people that stutter, which also not only affects them, but their families and everybody that knows them. And so many stutterers don't stutter when they're in a room by themselves. And I was given, I consider it grace. I was, I, I was given the grace to figure out that you cannot have a disability based on your location. If a man has a limp, he limps in every room of his house. He can't close the door and suddenly walk perfectly. But if I could go in a room by myself and say every single word that I thought was difficult without stuttering, then it really means that there's nothing wrong with me, that I created this. It's in my head. And so my parents had taken me for speech therapy, and no one was able to help me. Even to this day, uh, nobody really knows the exact cause of stuttering. And what I teach, because as an avocation, I work with stutterers and I teach. My parents took me to speech therapists, and no one was able to help me. And I was determined that I was not going to go through my whole life as a stutterer because it's a terrible disability to deal with. Uh, it's humiliating and 
you know, kids are cruel and they make fun of you. And I remember very clearly in high school, I was called on to answer a question and I stood at my desk and literally no words came out at all, zero. I couldn't say anything. And I, I, to, to this day, I remember the feeling, I just turned red, the heat in my face came over me and I just sat down, I couldn't say a word. And so w- when I got to college, and I, I, I won the election, I was the president <laughs> of the freshman class and I still stuttered and it was a great lesson for me because it taught me that outside validation doesn't work. In life, it doesn't matter how many people tell you you're fantastic and fabulous and talented or whatever. It matters what you think of yourself. That's sure. what really counts. And that was an important lesson for me to learn. So I was determined. I was literally obsessed with curing myself of stuttering. And I worked night and day, and I developed a cure that I now work with other stutterers, and I teach them how not to stutter. Um, and it's a question of changing your mind, literally changing the way you think. It's a very difficult thing to examine your thoughts objectively. But we, mm-hmm. cre- we create all of our thoughts. And any thought you create, you can also uncreate. Our thoughts are based not on our experience, but on our interpretation of our experience, which is very interesting. It's the reason why you can have two kids grow up in the same household with the same parents and the same environment, and they turn out completely different. You know, And so I had to examine all my thoughts. I had to basically take my mind apart and realize that I was holding thoughts that were not valid. And we all are. All of us are holding thoughts that are negative, very often negative about ourselves. And they're thoughts that were given to us by very often by strangers. By sure. pe- when you're a kid and other kids bully you, which is a very common thing, we keep that inside of us, and I call them heart wounds. We're all more sensitive than we want to admit. And these heart wounds stay with us, and they affect our self-esteem and our self-confidence and they, ex- they affect every decision that we make in our lives. Every time you have to make a decision, you use your thoughts to figure out what to do, right? Who else's thoughts can you use but your own? So you, you think what to do. But if your thoughts are faulty, your decisions are not going to work for you. And that's what was happening with me. Somewhere along the way, I created this need to stutter. I never actually said to myself, I think I should stutter. But I look at it as a habit, as a nervous habit. There are only so many habits that a human being can acquire. Mm-hmm. You know? And I, I made a list of them. You could bite your nails. You could twist your hair. You could tap your foot. You could, there's a lot of things that you could do. But maybe there's 10 or 12 of them. It's not an unending list. No one has a habit that's unique to them. You know? No one jumps up in the air and spins around as a habit. You do what other people do. One of the habits to, that I think is stuttering. So right. I, wor- I worked on myself obsessively for years. And as you can see, I no longer stutter. Now, so, could stuttering be exacerbated um, oh, by yeah. external influences? For example, people finishing sentences for you? Well, sure, that makes it worse. People, you know, when a stutterer is talking to somebody else, it's a very awkward situation for the person that they're talking to mm-hmm. because that person usually feels bad for the stutterer and they don't know what to do. And when it's awkward, you know, they try and help out thinking that 
you know, they're well-meaning. They'll help them finish the sentence. But for a stutterer, that's horrible, you know, and you're supposed to let them finish. But you're not supposed to stay in the stutter. What I teach them is stop for a minute. Don't continue. If you find yourself stuttering, just stop and say something else. Say whatever you're able to say. Say, hey, I can't believe I'm stuttering so badly, even if you say that. Just break, break where you are. Don't stay on that word that you're having a hard time saying. It's just, just a pattern. Just say, listen to your voice saying something else. Break that pattern. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, it's a very complicated procedure. It's not a short thing that you can just explain in a few sentences. But you can literally change your mind. It's about examining your thoughts, seeing what thoughts are not valid for you, and then internalizing new thoughts. It's like changing the hard drive on your computer. You, you, you uh, upload new information, you know, mm. and very often the new information is spiritually based. And um, when I mention that, I always, uh, I always discuss the distinction between spirituality and religion because they're completely different. And a lot of people don't know that. As soon as they hear spiritual, they think religion. Religion can be wonderful for people, but it puts you into a category. Mm -hmm. And automatically, other people who don't share your, your religion are out of that category. So it separates us. It divides us. Right. What's, what spirituality does is it brings everyone together because all it asks is that you believe in a force greater than yourself. And you could call it nature or the universe or God, whatever is comfortable for you, as long as you know that it isn't you. When, sure. you, th when you think that you're ruling your own life and everything is up to you to make your life work out perfectly, that's the cause of emotional illness because it's too much stress to carry. Things happen that are totally out of your control. And if you don't realize that, you blame yourself. You're, many people live their lives thinking what they should have done and what they could have done years ago and worrying about the future, what's going to happen to them. And in the meantime, they lose today. They're, they're not living in the present. There's that a makes great, sense. There's a Isn't great, there a flip side to that, though? Which is um, what? What's the flip uh, side? That, for example, if you're struggling with others in your life, you can't change that other person. Absolutely. But you can reflect on yourself, and you can work on yourself. And Absolutely. how you react to the person, things like that. So I, I, I see what you're saying, where some things are beyond your control, but then in some ways a lot of things you can bring into your control by working on yourself. Exactly. And, and magically when you do that, other people seem to change <laughs> because it's you that really can, the only person you could change is yourself. There's no right. way that you could change anyone else. Even if they love you, even if they want to change, they can try to change for you. But basically the only person you could change is yourself. And, when you do that, if you make a dramatic change in yourself, you'll also see how everybody around you seems to change because now you're a different person and they relate to you in a different way. You know, I've spent the last 20 years on the board of uh, the Association for Spirituality and Psychotherapy. Hmm. And even though I'm not a classically trained psychotherapist by any means, they accepted my work. I presented it to them in 1999 and um, many stress-related illnesses have physical symptoms. 
And when I was a, a clinical professor at a major university in New York City, uh, I was in the oral medicine, oral facial pain department. Mm-hmm. And my, my specialty was taking away headaches and physical body pain, head pain, neck pain, facial pain, caused from stress, from uh, clenching and grinding your teeth. Well, I have TMJ and I have an appliance. Well, is, it, is it soft <laughs> or hard, your appliance? <sighs> And you bend it in your fingers or is it no, hard? It's hard. It's hard. Okay. So I, I personally, I've been wearing one for many years. That's how I got started being involved in that specialty. Uh, I, I recommend using a soft one for the lower mm. teeth. Most dentists, for some reason, make hard ones for the upper teeth. Is yours for your uppers or lowers? It's for my uppers. And right. the See, theory so was that it was slippery so that I wouldn't get as much traction and stop. I'm just saying what their theory was that they gave. No, I understand their theory because I I debated all the time with other dentists. And when I taught at school, it was the same thing. I know they make hard ones for the upper teeth. I like a soft one for the lower teeth. A soft night guard absorbs the pressure. A hard night guard transfers the pressure. When you bite down on a hard night guard, it's like you're biting down on a rock. It's it has no <laughs> It has no give to it. And theoretically, your teeth are supposed to slide on it. I don't right. find that. I've tried them. I, I like a soft night guard that you can actually bend in your fingers. So when you grind, which you're going to do anyway, you're just not going to do damage when you're wearing the night guard. It protects your teeth from chipping and from getting loose and all the nasty things that happen when you're grinding over a long period of time. Your teeth wear down. Some people's teeth get so short, it looks like they have no teeth. But right. it also causes headaches, severe headaches in many people, and head pain to the point that people feel suicidal. I had patients like that were so severe. Mm. A patient once called from the hospital. They thought they had a, a brain tumor or something. And they called me, and they said, do you think this pain could be from grinding? And I said, have you been wearing a night guard? They said, no. And I said, well, put it in before you let them do anything invasive on you. And that turned out to be the problem, that they weren't wearing the night guard and all the muscles in their head cramped up because that's what happens when you don't wear it. The muscles go into spasm. You know, when, when you get a cramp in your calf, you feel it right away. It's very painful because it's a fleshy muscle. Sure. But your, your head is different. It feels like bone, but it's bone covered by a very thin layer of muscles. When those muscles cramp, you're not as aware of it because they're such thin muscles. But when they cramp, they close down on the nerves and the blood vessels inside of them. Mm. And that's what causes the pounding headache because the blood can no longer flow smoothly. And so my technique of healing, I use energy work to open up those blood vessels without injections, without drugs, just by using the energy from your hands to release those muscles, and that opens up the blood vessels, and the headache goes away. Now, that goes back to, I think you stated in the past that um, you're a bit of an empath, or you're very empathic. Yes, yeah, I've been, well, I started doing, I realized when I was only seven or eight years old that I could take away certain pain with my hands, which is, the older I get, and the more I think about that, it's a very strange thing. You know, my parents didn't know anything about it. They didn't teach it to me. It came to me intuitively. 
And it's one of the things that made me believe in past lives. Sometimes little children get gifts that are passed on because, you know, you hear about these like three-year-old piano prodigies. They play mm-hmm. an instrument, the, the violin or the piano. I mean, it's, it's uncanny. And I'm open to the concept that it came from a previous existence. And I there's think that's actually, what happened with me. I could touch people and take away pain with my hands. What were you going to say? There's actually what? Been some recent studies on that that are fascinating, that memories are being transferred through DNA. Yeah, nothing uh, surprises me when it comes to that. Well, you know what, too? I open my mind to all positive things. They're just positive thoughts. And when someone says they don't believe in that, my question to them is, how does it diminish you in any way to be open to the concept that that could be possible? Why Why close your mind to something like that? It's arrogant to say that you know that that's not true. That's fundamentalism. We're all just human beings. Our knowledge is limited. So when it comes to something that's potentially good, I I believe in it. I open my mind to it. You know, uh, it can't take anything away from you to believe in it. So I do. Well, fundamentalists, I think, are dangerous either way, and that includes somebody that is extremely hardcore in their religion or anti-theists. Because they're certain too. And anyone who's completely certain is limiting their possibilities just by default. Absolutely. Any kind of a a fanatic is not good. You have to have an open mind and you have to create balance. And you have to always think of both sides, you know, and just realize again that our knowledge is limited. We're just people. We can only know so much, you know. Now, your, your empath ability. Has Mm -hmm. that helped inform you for comedy and for writing? Well, interestingly enough, uh, and I'm glad that you brought it up, being an empath is tied in with sensitivity. And my sensitivity always felt like a burden to me growing up because it's a very hard thing to deal with. And in our society, uh, women are the the brunt of that. Women are always told that they're too sensitive. Mm-hmm. Uh, when it comes to stress-related illness, it affects women much more than men because right. women are told that they're too sensitive. And sensitivity is really a strength, not a weakness. It's a tremendous gift, but it doesn't feel like it. It feels like a burden when you're a kid and you grow up and you're very sensitive and everything bothers you. Um, I've learned to use it more through my studying of uh, the spiritual world and all uh, and. When I was in practice, you know, to be a doctor, to be a caring doctor makes you much more effective and patients respond well to that. You know, I had a patient once say to me, I'll never forget it. He said, I think you'd rather hurt yourself before you hurt me. And I said, yeah, I worked very hard to develop techniques of injections that were literally painless. There are ways to give patients injections without pain, but it takes effort. You have to work on it. And I did that. I worked for years to develop techniques um, like that. So being an empath is helpful in a lot of ways. Uh, when it comes to comedy, I don't know. It could work against you if you're feeling what the audience is feeling. You know, the nature of an e- the nature of an empath is that you feel what other people feel. So there was a time in my life if you were sad and I was with you, I was sadder for you than you were. I right. over I overfelt my feelings. I was like an antenna for feelings. In the comedy world, I mean, it helps when you're on stage. You have to connect to your audience, 
Mm-hmm. You know, otherwise, they're not going to really respond well. Everything is about energy. Anytime two people or more are together, they're experiencing each other's energy. They may not put it in those terms, but it's the reason why you can meet somebody and sometimes they make you feel uncomfortable right away. And sometimes you meet somebody and you love the person right away. You feel like you knew sure. them forever, even though you just met. And there are reasons for that too, you know? Uh, being an empath, I experience everything very deeply. I'm affected by color, by weather, by the light in the room, by the, the, the room itself. I'm affected by everything around me. So I have to control that environment as much as I can. Mm-hmm. And in this book that we're going to talk about, my book on happiness, I talk about creating your own happiness center. Because the only place that you can hope to control your environment is where you live, in your home. Once you leave the house, you're at the mercy of whatever the universe has in store for you that day. Mm-hmm. You know? And if you go right or left when you leave the house, your whole life's going to be different. And you can't dwell on that or you'd become catatonic. You just have to know that whichever way you go is the way you're supposed to go. But one way you might fall and skin your knee and the other way you, you might win the lottery. So you never know. These headphones are horrible. I hate headphones. <laughs> I absolutely hate, you, hate headphones. They pop out of my ears. Sorry, I don't know. I, I have the wrong ears, I guess. I don't know. Some people have ears where they stay in. My ears oh, reject them. There are some um, headphones that you can get where you will squeeze them together like foam and then put them in and they'll stay in. Oh, I but should probably get those. Okay, you may want to look into them. I can't do the ones with the cups because that messes up my hair and I can't do that. Even <laughs> It's so funny. Even when I'm in the studio, like on the, if I'm a guest at Sirius XM, they never make me wear headphones. Oh, wow. In deference, in deference to my hair. Yes, everybody um, who's not looking at the picture right now, um, Jeffrey has a legendary head of hair that um, Mark Marin likes to address directly. Yeah, he said it was an honor. Yeah. <laughs> it was so funny. That, that, uh, that video, I, uh, my editor put that together of all these people in comedy saying funny things. Sarah Silverman and Nick Kroll and Bob Saget and Paul Provenza. They all had something funny to say. Judah Friedlander. They're all in this little video on my channel. Your hair and your look is kind of a trademark. Well, it's so funny. I I play myself on TV. Yesterday, I can't tell you what show it was, but I shot a huge television show yesterday uh, for a major cable network, and I I play myself. And so when they contacted me, the hair and makeup department contacted me, and wardrobe. So I sent them pictures, and they started to laugh. They researched me, and they said, no, you have to bring your own clothes. (laughs) (laughs) And you'll do your own hair. The only thing they did was put some makeup on me because when I show up, they see I have my own style and, you know, that's part of my brand. And they couldn't have anything that would be better than my own stuff. So they all let me bring my own clothes. When I did, uh, Nick Kroll had a show on Kroll Show. And I, uh, I have the distinction of being the very first person in the world to be pranked with too much tuna. And I don't know if you're familiar with Too Much Tuna, but it's a sketch that Nick and John Mulaney do uh, where they prank people with a very big tuna sandwich. It's about this high. (laughs) And it's hilarious to them. And as a matter of fact, I got to prank Judd Apatow, the king of Hollywood, with this big tuna sandwich. 
And uh, so I'm the first. So when I went out there, again, I played myself in the sketches. And uh, they pranked me with this big tuna sandwich. And it went viral. It's got about 750,000 views already. Wow. Yeah. And so wherever I go, people yell out too much tuna. I was at this comedy festival last weekend. And a guy, just by coincidence, happened to come up to me in a too much tuna shirt, a T-shirt. It's a too much tuna. And he was so excited to meet me. And he said, hey, let's, can we take a picture together? And it was, it was amazing that he was wearing that shirt. So that's my brand. What started that? I mean, what made you decide to put this particular look together? It just evolved. I don't know. I, always, I was always into my hair. And I don't know, everybody chooses a look for themselves. Everybody chooses a look for themselves. It mm. evolves. Whether they realize it or not, you choose your own style. And mine just evolved. When I went to school, I went to Temple University in Philadelphia. I always talk about it because it was a nightmare of an experience. Uh, you weren't allowed to have a mustache. Mm -hmm. And if you grew a mustache, like I did, uh, I was banned from school for three weeks. That's how important it was to them. Meanwhile, the founders of Temple University are all on the wall. Their pictures, they all have mutton chops and big beards and <laughs> mustaches, a face filled with facial hair. But if you had a mustache when I went, you couldn't. And they thought my hair was long. My hair was so short. And I was banned from school. My mother had to buy me a wig with a, with a part like to wear it very flat. And they literally tortured me Wow! for years. And my hair was growing under the wig. You know, when you go into the service, one of the first things they do is they shave your head because mm -hmm. they take away your identity. Mm -hmm. You know, if everyone looks the same, it makes you one of many. Mm -hmm. And the only way you can achieve an identity is if you have a unique style of how you dress or how you wear your hair or something else about you. You know, people take on certain things. So it's been many years that I have, that look and it's become my brand and people know me by that. And so when I get asked to do these things, I usually wind up playing myself because that's who all, all I could be at this point. <laughs> I could play, I've studied acting and I could do other things, but I think people think it's funny to have me come in and play myself. Did you use that um, while you were a dentist or were you much more um, buttoned up? Well, no, I, I always looked the same, but I was very serious in my practice. I never, people used to say to me, are you sure you're in comedy? I, I had pictures on my wall of me with all these famous comedians that I worked with, but um, I, I was not the kind of person to really tell jokes in the office. I had an, an environment of humor, an attitude of humor, but I don't like doctors that tell jokes. They try to be funny at Usually at inappropriate moments, I once dislocated my shoulder. And when I called my doctor, someone must have told him to make jokes when you talk to your patients. Mm. But he, he didn't realize that you're supposed to wait till they're not in pain. I was in excruciating pain. And he said to me, don't make a habit of this. And I said, you know what? It's not even funny. I couldn't laugh because my arm was hanging out of the socket. And I said, Ouch. you know. You're supposed to make jokes after the person is is fixed up, not while they're in the midst of whatever they're in the midst of, you know? And it's funny because about two and a half years ago, I had a heart attack. Mm -hmm. And uh, 
no one believed me. I went up, I was walking in the street, it was pouring rain, and I was on my way to a chiropractor's office for my first visit with this chiropractor. And I was getting this weird feeling in my chest while I was home. And it was pouring rain, and I was thinking maybe I should cancel this appointment and make it another day. It was coming down in buckets. And I don't like going out in the rain also because of my hair. It bothers, it sounds silly, <laughs> but I don't like to go out in the rain. So anyway, I decided I was going to go and I was getting this pain in my chest. And I thought maybe it was muscular because I had been working out a lot and doing a lot of upper body exercises. Mm-hmm. So I thought, well, if it's muscular, the chiropractor might be able to help me. So I left the house. My first thought was to get back into bed, and it's lucky I didn't do that because a lot of people get in bed and they never get out. Mm. So I left the house, I got on the subway, and the pain was getting worse, and I was rubbing it, and it felt like it was getting better. And I'm like, you can't rub away a heart attack, so maybe it's just muscular. But as I was progressing, it was getting worse and worse. And it wasn't any of the symptoms that it tells you in the books, like an elephant on your chest and you're sweating and you're nauseous and pain down your arm. Didn't feel like that at all. What it felt like was if you ever got a cramp in your calf, that's Mm -hmm. how it felt like like I was getting a cramp in my heart, in my chest. Mm. So I got off the subway and walked up the stairs and I had about a six block walk. And for some reason, I don't, still don't know why, I got the feeling to turn down the certain block near Radio City Music Hall where Jimmy Fallon does the Tonight Show from. Mm-hmm. His, his building is right next to Radio City. And I'm walking down that block, pouring rain with an umbrella, and I see a police van. And it's very awkward to tell someone that you think you're having a heart attack. It, what if you're not, right? But I, right. I said, I'd feel like an awful dope if I just died in the street and didn't <laughs> tell anyone, right? I feel like a schmuck. So I went over to the window and I tapped on the window and I said to the cop, I'm sorry to bother you, but I think I'm having a heart attack. And he says to me, well, I think you should go to the hospital. And, <laughs> and, I, and I was like, well, that's why I'm telling you. I'm not just telling everyone. <laughs> I, I thought that they were going to say to me, hop in, they'd put the siren on and drive me to the hospital, right? That's what you would normally expect. But instead, he says, well, we're stuck in traffic here. It'll probably be faster if you walk. <laughs> so I said, what? I said, well, where's the nearest hospital? And he didn't know. None of the cops knew. Four cops. Nobody knew where there's a hospital. <laughs> we're, on, we're right in the middle of Manhattan in New York City. So... He, he takes out his phone, his iPhone, and he starts looking for hospitals, right? And he says to me, do you have Google Maps? <laughs> and I said, no, I don't. And I'm standing, now you have to picture, I'm standing in the pouring rain with an umbrella, <laughs> having a heart attack, and he's asking me if I down, have Google Maps. I said, no. He said, you should probably download Google Maps. <laughs> and that, that's when I walked away. I said, this is a Woody Allen movie. This is ridiculous. <laughs> Tell the guy I'm having a heart attack. He tells me to download Google Maps. So I, I, I walked away, and I could only get another half a block because the pain was getting really bad. So there's another cop, and he's on a walkie-talkie. Mm-hmm. I do the same thing. I say to him, sorry to bother you. I think I'm having a heart attack. And he says to me, stand on the side over here. So I assume he's going to call the ambulance. So a couple of minutes go by. Nobody's coming. I said to him, did you call him? He goes, oh, I'm sorry. I didn't call them yet. So I'm like, nobody is taking this too seriously, right? He finally calls them, 
the first responders are a fire truck. Hmm. So a fire truck, because they're all EMTs. And right. in New York City, I don't know how it is in other states, but in New York City, if there's a, a health Paramedics. problem, very often the firemen will come first. Mm-hmm. So the fire truck pulls up and he says, who's the patient? I said, me. He says, okay, well, climb up on the truck. Four, four or five firemen get off. And he said, <laughs> climb up on the truck. And I said, are you serious? And he goes, now nah, we're just effing with you. I don't know what your <laughs> language is like on, on the show, but now nah, we're just effing with you. And I, I didn't know what to make of it. Then the ambulance pulled up finally. And two paramedics get out who think it's hilarious that both their names are Mike. And everyone's joking around and they take me in the ambulance and they start doing this very long involved medical history. And I say to them, listen, can't you ask me these questions on your way to the hospital? I have really bad chest pain and I don't know what's happening to me. And they're like, no, we have to do it now. And that's when I said, I said, listen, I'm a doctor and I know that you could take my medical history while we're driving. And they got annoyed. They got annoyed. They're like, no, we have to do it now. And stupid questions like, uh, did you ever have an uncle that felt nauseous? Hmm. <laughs> Can you imagine? I mean, stupid questions that had nothing to do with it. Finally, they get me to the hospital. They didn't even use a siren. I said, why don't you use the siren? They go, well, you don't fall within the parameters of a siren. If we use a siren, we have to go through red lights and it's pouring rain. It's safer for you if we don't use the siren. The whole <laughs> thing was ridiculous. They finally... They finally got me there, and the doors to the hospital wouldn't open. It was a series. It was a comedy of errors. Wow. By accident, they saved my life. Mm-hmm. Uh, a doctor put me on blood thinners. They didn't realize how serious it was. The next day, I didn't get to see a cardiologist till the next day. I laid in the emergency room for nine hours. Oh. And luckily, from three in the afternoon till midnight, Luckily, they started me on a blood thinner, and that's probably what saved me. Because when they finally figured out what was wrong with me, I was over 90% blocked in my LAD artery, which is the artery they call the widow maker. Mm-hmm. And they put in a stent, and I knock wood, I'm fine. But it was a crazy, a crazy kind of a thing, because you're supposed to do it within 90 minutes, not the next day. That nobody, so painful. Nobody there came for nine to check. Hours. Yeah, I mean, it was insane. Fi- finally, the pain started to go away from the medication that they gave me, but it took hmm. a long time, and it was just—it's a, a crazy story, and I didn't embellish it at all. That's exactly what happened because I stayed so calm. For some reason, hmm. I wasn't panicking. All my training came in, and I just stayed very calm because I realized that for whatever reason, this is part of my path. You know, hmm. you can't only believe in principles when it's convenient. When your life is going great, it's easy to say, yeah, I believe in all these principles. It's when it feels like nothing is going right that it's wow. important. So I realized that this is part of my path and I just have to go along with it. And I stayed really calm. So maybe and next time that- manufacture a little more panic. Well, yeah, I think so. I, but I think that helped me because I was back on stage five days later. Five days later, I was performing and the owner of the club said to me, what are you, crazy? You just had a heart attack. And I was like, yeah, but it's hard to get a spot here. I don't want to lose my spot. <laughs> that is like the <laughs> ultimate complete comedian um, thought pattern right there, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. You do anything <laughs> to get a spot. You can't mess up a spot. It's, 
in New York City especially, the clubs are so great. There's l- literally thousands of people that think they're comedians these days, as opposed to years ago. There was a handful of comedians. Every every place you look, there are comedians or people who think they're comedians. So it's very hard to get stage time. And you're working with them now with um, the show Comics Watching Comics, right? That's one of the shows that I'm working with. Uh, yeah, that show where I, I I was named the master panelist. It's established comedians judging young up-and-coming comedians or aspiring comedians, let's say, on their jokes and their techniques. It's the only chance I get to be mean. I hate being mean to people. <laughs> But some of these people, you need to be mean to them because they're not funny and they're talking about horrible things. You know, I came up at a time, I got to know the old greats of comedy from the golden age. Milton Berle was my sponsor in the Friars Club. Which is just amazing. I got to write for Milton Berle and Jerry Lewis and I got to work with Sid Caesar and Henny Youngman and people like that. Some of the, the greats from yesteryear and these days I work with the, the young comics like Nick Kroll and John Mulaney and uh, the guys from MTV, from Girl Code and Guy Code. They're all friends of mine. And I cover the comedy scene. I'm out just about every night going from show to show. I have a column that comes out every week, every Monday, in a, in a huge comedy website called The Interrobang, which is a very strange word. But it's it's a real word. It's a part of punctuation. It means a question mark followed by an exclamation point. It's called an interrobang. It's an awesome word, actually. <laughs> Why they called it that, though, I have no idea. But so my column is called "Jumping Around with Jeffrey Gurian" because that's what I do. I jump around, and that's my theme song. When I go on the radio, they play "Jump Around" as my lead-in song because it was the best party song of all time by House of Pain. You know, <laughs> so. So Speaking I'm out which, all the time. And he I, had a heart attack like yours. Who did? Everlast. Oh, did he really? Yeah. I was just with Colin Quinn yesterday, and he had a heart attack wow. fairly recently. And we were comparing heart attack stories, but he had three stents put in. I only needed one. So he's ahead <laughs> of me by two. And Knockwood, he looks great, too. He's fine. He just got engaged, and he's getting <clears> married soon. What a great guy he is. That is awesome how you've managed to establish all these relationships. It's very interesting to me because I started out knowing literally no one in show business. Uh, My grandfather owned a nightclub. Hmm. So growing up, and and it was a nightclub in the Bronx that was a big, a very well-known place like in the 1940s and 50s in New York City. And... uh, so I, I always had a fascination with show business. And when I was 12 years old, I decided I wanted to be a dentist and I was already writing comedy. So my whole life was that split. And I got to work with legends. I got to write for Rodney Dangerfield and Joan Rivers and Richard Belzer and Gilbert Gottfried and George Wallace and even Andrew Dice Clay. I'm one of the few people that ever wrote for Andrew Dice Clay. I wouldn't tell you what the jokes were, but right, I got right. to write for him and Paulie Shore and just a very long list of people. On that note, um, I listen time to time to different comedians on podcasts and things. There, there seems to be, I don't know, splits in the comedy world. Like some people don't like 
that people use joke writers or they'll criticize them and others are okay with it. Have have you noticed that kind of divide? Yeah, but it's not really true anymore. There used to be the older comics that I mentioned before, they understood that they needed writers and there was nothing wrong with it. But as a, as a writer for someone famous, you could never really say to people, Oh, I mean, unless they gave you permission, they didn't really want people to know outside the business that their jokes were being written by somebody else because they felt it would diminish them. So if I was being interviewed, I would ask the people, is it okay if I say that I'm writing for you? Uh, These days, young comics don't really use writers. It's very rare. They don't even really tell jokes. Most of the young comics these days are storytellers. They wind up, you know, and that's another branch of comedy, so to speak. There are actual shows you know, Big J Okerson does a show called What's Your Effing Deal? <laughs> with, but he doesn't just, he says the real word, you know. Sure. Uh, by the way, what's the language like on your show? Uh, you can flip a couple in. I mean. Well, it's not really necessary. People know what I meant. But, but he's, yeah. uh, you know, it's all crowd work. Comedians okay. these days do crowd work and, very, and storytelling. Very few comics really tell jokes anymore, like uh, Mitch Hedberg, Stephen Wright. You know, uh, people like that who used to, they were known for telling amazing jokes. You know, Richard Lewis, great comic, tells great jokes. Um, so comedy has changed in that aspect. But the young comics don't use writers. The people that need writers are the television hosts. They have very large mm. staffs of writers because you can't come up with all those jokes every night on your own. you sure. got to have a staff of writers to do that. But stand-up comedians these days, they may run lines past their friends, like, what do you think of this? You think this is funny or whatever? But they don't use writers. When, when they're new, they can't afford writers anyway. It's expensive to hire a writer to write your jokes. And when they're well-known, they, they got to be well-known on their own. So they usually don't use writers. So <laughs> comedy writers these days work in TV mostly. Are you still writing? Um, I write TV for myself or? now. No, I write for myself. Um, okay. I don't write. I mean, if people ask me, I write. But I wrote for the Friars Roast many. I was the main writer for the Friars Roast for 12 years. And I got to write the original Bruce Willis Roast. Comedy Central just roasted him this past weekend. And I think it's going to air sometime this month. Hmm. Uh, but I worked on the, the, the first Bruce Willis Roast. And I worked with him on his speech. And I wrote Jerry Lewis's speech for his first roast. And I worked on the first Chevy Chase roast. We, we roasted him three times. They roasted him from the Friars Club. What um, Roasts seem like they're starting to get a little edgier. Well, no, it's not even edgier. They're very mean these days. There's a whole mean-spiritedness to them that I really object to. Uh, when I used to write for the roast, and it's because they're doing roast battles. They're not mm. really roast anymore. Roast battles are where two comedians get up on a stage and they battle each other by telling jokes about the other person. Right. If, so, if someone has cancer, there was a time when you wouldn't mention that. Now they make jokes about it. If someone's parent just died, they use that as fodder for jokes. That's material. Wow. If, someone, if someone in their family had an accident and something horrible happened to them, they make fun of that. If a girl had an abortion or lost a baby, 
They make fun of that. So Jeez. there's no limits. I, I, to me, I think it's horrifying. But I'm in the audience because I, I cover the comedy scene. So I'm there when they do that, and the audience is laughing. So that perpetuates mm. that type of humor. And I was sitting with some very well-known people yesterday taping this big TV show, which I can't talk about yet, but they agreed <laughs> with me. They said, yeah, it's very mean-spirited, and they don't like it. But it's very hard to change that. So roasts are different. You I know, guess that makes it more poignant than the, what Norm MacDonald did on the Bob Saget roast. You'll have to remind me. I don't remember. He uh, essentially went and got like a 1930s or 40s joke book. Yeah. And just did old-timey jokes. Well, he's like he's, anti-roast. He's a strange guy, Norm MacDonald, and a very unusual character. And there are plenty of them in the comedy world, you know. Um but look, I go back to the roasts when they were like gentlemen's roasts, you know, when Milton Berle was the, was the roast master, he was amazing. And the jokes were always raunchy, but not disgusting and not right. mean spirited. You know, when I used to write for them, I would go up to the person being honored and I would ask, I said, is there anything you're sensitive about that you don't want to be said? during the course of the event. And if they said there was, I wouldn't write jokes about it. That's all. I, I, my intent is never to hurt anybody's feelings. The intent of roast battles, it seems, is to hurt the other person's feelings. You know? Mm. And uh, that's the state of comedy these days. It's very strange. There's nothing left to be said uh, that you can say that would shock anybody. But yet, everybody's focused on being politically correct. So it seems almost like a contradiction. Well, comedians are not focused. The audience is focused on being politically correct, which has made comedy very difficult these days. You, you know, the audience is going, ooh, ah, oh, you know, and like comedians have to remind them, look at the sign, you're in a comedy club. We're just joking. You know, I look at comedy as a healing force that brings everybody together. If you can't laugh at yourself, that's not a good thing, you know? You laugh at yourself and then you laugh at others. I was, last year, I was the opening comic at the Martin Luther King Comedy Festival. I was the only white hmm. guy. It was an all black crowd and they asked me to be the opening comic. And while I was on stage, I said to the audience, hey, are you guys into racial humor? And they said, <laughs> yes, definitely. They said, yes. And I did jokes and they laughed. They, they commended me afterwards. And I, I did a special thank you. And I said, you know what? I really want to thank you, people, because it's very special that you were open to that and that you laughed at it. And I said, and that's what brings us together, when we can laugh at ourselves and then at each other, because they're really just jokes and there's no meanness behind it, you know? Lisa Lampanelli is a perfect example of that, the lovable queen of mean. She makes sure. fun of everybody, starting with herself. Mm -hmm. And the audience is hysterical. She makes fun of gay people, but her biggest charity that she donates money to is a gay charity. Her opening acts are always gay. You know, she makes sure of that. So, you know, you can do it. It depends. People know if you're coming from a good place or if you're coming from a place of hatred. Human beings can sense that from each other. Sure. And right now in our country, there's there, there are people who wake up in the morning... They just can't wait to be offended by something. 
Victims that are looking for an insult. Yeah, and very often it's people who are offended for people not even in their own group. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. there there are some. There's a friend of mine, a black comic, who says he can't stand white liberals because they're offended for black people about it's insulting things, about things that black people wouldn't be offended about. Well, ironic, it's racist because somebody. Somebody who's offended for somebody else is patronizing that other person. Mm -hmm. Don't worry uh, about that person. They, they'll take care of themselves. Right. As They're if fine. They could, as if they couldn't do it on their own. But but it's great coming from him because he's very funny and he really makes jokes about it and it's very poignant. And again, so I look at comedy as a healing force, that it, it brings people from all backgrounds together. If you ever see a Russell Peters show, same thing. He's an Indian comic born in Canada, no accent. He can imitate every accent in the world. When he does the Indian accent, he goes, we know what we sound like. You don't have to make fun of us. And, but he does the accent, and he does every country's accent. And his audience is it's multicultural. I call, him, I call him the messiah of comedy. He's a good friend of mine. And when you're in the audience with him, there's people from everywhere, all over the world, are there, and everybody's laughing. And that's how it's supposed to be. And that's uh, a great example of that. That is awesome. And on that note, since you've written for so many um, big names and distinct personalities, I was curious, while you're writing, do you hear their voices in your head? Oh, you have to. Yeah, it's, that's a must. And I guess that's part of the gift. People say, how do you write jokes for someone else? I would listen to a tape of them if I didn't, you know, if they were in New York City, I would sit with them. It's funny because when I was writing for Rodney, he never used to let people tape his act, but he did with me. And I'm so inept with technology even then. So I, I went to the club. I thought I was taping his act. And at the end of his act, my tape recorder was blank. I never got <laughs> it. I don't know what happened to it. But I used to live and I, I was embarrassed to admit that to him. You know, it was terrible. But... Uh, I used to work from tapes or listen to albums of theirs or because this goes before the Internet. You know, now you could bring up somebody and listen to them there. But sure. you have to you have to write in that person's voice. You can't just write jokes because one comedian theoretically should not be able to do another comedian's jokes. As a matter of fact, Jerry Seinfeld in the early days, they used to do that as as a joke. You know, I wrote the book on the comic strip, a book called Laughing Legends. Yes, yeah. And Chris Rock wrote the introduction to it. And I interviewed Jerry Seinfeld and Ray Romano and Billy Crystal and Lisa Lampanelli and Susie Essman, about 40 of the biggest stars that came out of that club. And uh, I'm losing my train of thought. Uh, right. what's they would the, do each other's acts or... Oh, oh yeah. They would, yeah. There was a part, there, there was a... a part of the, I don't remember when, maybe around the holidays, where they would try and do each other's acts on stage. And it was very funny because it didn't work. Somebody whose jokes were hysterical, like Jerry Seinfeld, uh, Paul Reiser would try to do his act and it <laughs> wouldn't work because you can't do somebody else's jokes. There are people who steal jokes, but you can't do somebody else's jokes. Now, when you um, were writing them, did, did you actually impersonate them, you know, in private, but perform the no, jokes no, yourself no, no, to, to do that? No, I can tell what's funny on paper. I don't. Really? Okay. Yeah. 
I mean, just when you're in comedy and you have a sense of humor, you can tell just by by reading it. And most professional comics don't even laugh when you give them the jokes. That takes that takes a lot of getting used to. You know, you 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 give somebody your jokes that you work very hard on, and they look at the paper and they go, "Oh, that's funny. Oh, that's really funny. Oh, I'm hysterical." But they don't laugh. They just stay like that. <laughs> I'm hysterical, and they're just look, and I'm like, well, tell your face, you know, like smile, do something. But you have to get used to that. A lot of people in comedy, they don't laugh. They recognize when something's funny, but they don't laugh. Well, comedians so, are among the most serious people on the planet, aren't they? They can be. They can be. Everyone's different, but well, for a lot of them, their personality comes out on stage. So that was my fourth book, leading into my fifth book. Yes. Which I, I hope we're going to get a chance to talk yeah, about. Yeah, let's start talking about it. Well, okay. It's called Healing Your Heart by Changing Your Mind, A Spiritual and Humorous Approach to Achieving Happiness. Mm-hmm. And I'm happy to say that it recently became a bestseller on Amazon. Nice. And if I hold it up, maybe they can see the cover. Well, it's like, audio only. so Oh, it's audio only? They'll have to be okay. <laughs> empathic oh, I, okay. and draw it through. So I, okay. I thought, I thought we were doing video too. So it's... There's a picture on the cover of a dog in lotus position sitting on an orange pillow in the sky. And a lot of people really resonate with that. And uh, it's about getting rid of the heart wounds that I mentioned earlier, these heart wounds. Yeah, can you describe those? Well, from the time we're children, every time someone hurts you in some way, breaks a promise to you, insults you, bullies you, you know, when we're growing up, we're taught this this saying, you know, sticks and stones will break your bones, but words will never harm you, which is the furthest from the truth that there could be. Because all the bruises you got when you were a kid healed up a long time ago. There's a variant on that, that sticks and stones may break your bones, but words cause permanent damage. Yeah, exactly. And every single one of you, everybody who's listening to this show, can remember a time when someone said something to them that hurt their feelings and it feels like it was just yesterday, whether someone broke up with you or lied to you in some way. And the interesting thing is that trauma is more deeply embedded than happy times. You know, there's something called cellular memory. Cellular memory is very interesting because what it means is that every single thing that you've experienced since you're born is still inside of you everything that you've experienced in your senses. It's the reason why you could hear a song you like and you'll remember the boy or girl you liked in the third grade immediately. There's no thought involved. Mm -hmm. Or you smell a perfume and you'll be like, wow, my kindergarten teacher wore that perfume. It's like a sensory deja vu. It takes you right back to it. And the same thing happens with experiences. So all day long, we're getting triggers from things that remind us of our past. And if we have a lot of heart wounds, it affects our self-confidence, it affects our self-esteem, and it affects every decision that you make in your life. As I said earlier, because all your decisions are based on your thoughts. So these heart wounds can, can force you to have thoughts that are negative about yourself. Mm-hmm. If people said bad things to you about yourself, you, you, you might believe them. You might think they're true if it was someone that you once cared about. And so it's important to release these heart wounds and change the way you think. 
And how do you do this? Literally, well, it's a process. You have to examine. If, if they read the book, they'll find out. I mean, there's a whole book about this. This, <laughs> book, this book represents 20 years of thought and my work. Um, you know, and there are like using affirmations to change the way you think. It's one of the ways that I stop stuttering mm. is using affirmations, trying to find chapters. Um, there's a chapter on star therapy, which is my form of healing. Star therapy, S-T-A-R. It's an acronym for spiritual transformational affirmative resonance therapy. The mm. resonance refers to music that I use. It refers to my voice because I speak the whole time I do it. But it also refers to a truth. People who are depressed and need new thoughts, that they need, like if you say something to someone that they need to hear, it'll resonate inside of them as a truth. And mm -hmm. people who are depressed, very often, it's because of their thoughts. They're thinking the wrong things. And you need to guide them into proper thinking. So... Um, I talk about heart wounds and cellular memory, the power of thought. Uh, fear is a very big thing. There's a whole chapter on fear and fighting the fear. Uh, one of the important things that I say is you can't change your past. The only thing you could change is your perspective of your past. True. So, you know, there's a reason for every single thing that happened in your life. And you need to review that and you need to think about it. Uh, so many people blame their parents for things. And, you know, theoretically, your parents did the best they could do. No parents ever wake up in the morning saying, how can I mess up my kid today? What can I do to hurt them sure. purposely? It, that doesn't mean you don't get hurt. You know, if you, if you stab someone accidentally, you still stab them. Right. You know, you can say you're sorry from morning to night. It doesn't heal the wound. But it's important to understand certain things and to process information in a different way. And to listen to yourself a little bit, maybe check in. And if you're feeling anger, acknowledge it and say, hey, hey, anger, how are you doing? There's a chapter on gratitude and service, which are two very, very important principles. Uh, how to create your own happiness center, reprogramming your mind through the use of affirmations, the power of smiling. You know, there are just so many things in here that are helpful to people. And I think that's why it's become a bestseller on Amazon, because people are really resonating with it. If your listeners look it up uh, and read the reviews, you'll see the powerful reviews that I've been getting, uh, even from psychiatrists and psychologists, which was the most important to me. On the back of the book, there are reviews that were written by psychotherapists hmm. who validate everything that I wrote. You know, and uh, one of them in part says the book teaches us using the many techniques that Gurian has developed that all healing originates from the heart. This book is a gift and it's written by an MD, by a psychiatrist. Wow. Uh, and so, you know, I can only hope that. That's something I said resonated with people because that's what it takes. That's the concept of resonance, that if you heard something that makes sense to you, that you'll look into it because most interactions are very superficial. When you meet people on a social level, most interactions, you know, it's small talk. It's superficial. It doesn't mean anything. 
But every once in a while, you'll meet somebody that says something that's important for you to hear, mm-hmm. and it can change your life when you hear it. And it's important to be aware of that and not overlook opportunities. And you write about your stuttering in there too, right? A lot about my stuttering. Because, and it's not only about stuttering. It's a much bigger story. It's about overcoming obstacles in your life and knowing what you can change and what you can't change. There's a spiritual prayer called the serenity prayer. And it's grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can. And the most important sentence of all, and the wisdom to know the difference. That's the most important thing. To, to know what you can change and what you can't change. There are certain things that we're born with that you can't change, that you have to accept them. That's where acceptance comes in, which is a very important principle. But if I hadn't known that I could change stuttering, I'd still be stuttering today. So I was given the grace to figure out that there was really nothing wrong with me. I created it, and now I uncreated it. And as you can see, we're speaking for an hour, and I haven't stuttered. Yes. <laughs> so, you know... It works. It definitely works. I could start stuttering tomorrow. I don't let myself. I refuse to stutter because it does me no good and there's no reason for it anymore. And when you start stuttering when you're a child, if you start stuttering at five, six, or seven years old, you've already been speaking okay for a few years. Hmm. And it's a decision that you're making with a seven-year-old mind. Why would you continue doing that when you're 30? Makes sense. Why would you lead your life according to something that you decided on when you were seven, when you're 30? It doesn't make sense. And when people realize that, they can let go of their stuttering because you, you wouldn't dress the way you dressed when you were seven. You don't have the same friends. All your tastes are different. You're a different person. So you don't want to live your life according to something that you decided as a child. That's true. That totally makes sense. Now, this book is available on Amazon. Is it also in a paperback? Yeah, it's in paperback. It's available as an ebook and as a paperback and, uh, on Amazon and in Barnes & Noble. You can get it both. I think that's about the only bookstore left. I don't know what's in Virginia. Do they have bookstores still in Virginia? <laughs> they do. I, ironically, I think in a weird way, I don't know if you re- remember the movie, um, You've Got Mail. But in that movie, it was in the 90s, and it was all about how the big, big bookstore came in and was taking over for her little shop. small bookstores out of business. For some reason, I remember parts of that, yeah. Well, it's flipping, because now the giant bookstores are dying, and the only bookstores that can make it are mom-and-pop ones, because they have a smaller overhead and specialized catering audiences. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of a cool comeuppance. We do have Barnes & Nobles occasionally. There's not as many anymore but there are a lot more independents. That's a very interesting observation that that, that that whole situation flipped. Yeah, because you're right, because all the big bookstores are going out of business. Because people, a lot of people read stuff on their phones, on their Kindles. Sure. Entertainment, entertainment has changed tremendously. Now, on that note, you also have, I want to read off a couple more of these. You have Laughing Legends, How the Comic Strip Club Changed the Face of Comedy. Mm-hmm. Make Them Laugh, 35 Years of the Comic Strip. And that one's also an audio book. I've already bought that along with your new book. Oh, how nice. Thank you so much. And then, I, I, the, then I have this, this book, which is my favorite kind of humor, Man Robs Bank with His Chin. Right. I used to write for the Weekly World News, which was the precursor to The Onion. Did that have um, Bad Boy? Yes. Yeah. But I had my own column called Gurian's World of the Bazaar. 
And it was like stories like man impaled on spike still shows up for work on time, you know, and uh, man robs bank with his chin, which is, you know, un just unusual stories missed by mainstream media. So it's an entire book of very unusual stories that you'll never hear anywhere else. It's called Man Robs Bank with His Chin. They're all available on Amazon. Which is awesome. You um now you also have uh comedymatterstv.com. Yeah, well, that's my website. If people want to see some fun stuff, comedymatterstv.com is my website. And then I have a, a YouTube channel called Comedy Matters TV, but with a different website. It's youtube.com slash Gurian News Network. G-U-R-I-A-N, Gurian News Network. And I have over 500 video interviews with all the top people in comedy, from Jimmy Fallon on down, Jimmy Fallon, Chelsea Handler, John Stewart, Jim Carrey. I got a great interview with Jim Carrey last year at the Just for Laughs Festival, where I'm going next week. Every year, oh, wow. every year at the end of July, it's the biggest comedy festival in the world called Just for Laughs. And all the big stars come up. Kevin Hart's going to be there. You know, I co-produced an event starring Kevin Hart uh, back in 2010. For It was a, a benefit for Haiti after the earthquake. And Kevin Hart was the star. And Tony Rock. And a, a, a Haitian comedian, and Will Sylvince, who's on TV a lot these days. And uh, they're all coming up to Montreal. All the big stars. Howie Mandel, who just bought just for laughs he's a partner there now he's an oh, wow. owner of the just for laughs festival <laughs> and just all the all the huge stars come up we all gather up there and it's constant shows for a couple of weeks i go up for the last three or four days for, for the award ceremonies tiffany haddish is going to be there receiving an award and so many of the big comedians you know little rel i don't know if you know rel he just got his own show on tv i think it's called rel and <laughs> uh so I'm really looking forward to that. But that's my YouTube channel. is youtube.com slash Gurian News Network. And you'll see Bill Burr and Patrice O'Neill. I was his co-host on the Black Phillip show. Wow, that's amazing. And yeah, it was a great honor to me to be able to work with Patrice. And uh, so there's all those sites for people. And if you're on Twitter or Instagram, I'm at Jeffrey Gurian. And it's spelled J-E-F-F-R-E-Y. The R comes first. Too many people are misspelling <laughs> Jeffrey these days. They do it E-R-Y. I don't know why. But anyway, it's Jeffrey. It's at Jeffrey Gurian, G-U-R-I-A-N, and the same on Instagram. So I they can definitely put all these links way. in. Yeah, people who want to get in touch can do that. All right. Well, hey, thank you so much for coming on and sharing all this. This is Well, thank you for having total me. Honor. It was really, really fun. You're a good interviewer, and I had a blast. Mr. Hayes' office, how may I help you? Andrea, it's Marilyn over at Kennedy Parker Construction. Hello, Marilyn. Would you like me to connect Mr. Parker to Mr. A fish Hayes? surrounded by sharks. A secretary cursed by desire and ambition. Introducing The Diarist by Donna Barrow Green. The Diarist, an addictive psychological thriller, satirical, suspenseful, and full of twists. Available on iTunes or anywhere you get your podcasts. Yes. I'm sorry if I've hurt your feelings. Or if something I've said has led you to believe, I think you're incompetent. It's just been so long since you've given me any encouragements or compliments on my... Andrea. 
I do notice you. I like that blouse on you very much. You look very pretty, just as you are right now. Oh, well, I... It's very pretty on you. Thank you. What sort of fabric is it? It's silk. It's lovely. You have excellent taste in clothes. I notice. Would you mind removing your cardigan? My sweater? Yes, so I can see the blouse in its entirety. Why? I like it very much. You see, I do notice you. You know that, don't you? I don't have to tell you I notice these things. You know when I like something, don't you? I don't know. I repeated his words in my mind. I notice you. That was it, wasn't it? I wanted someone to notice me. Not Andrea the daughter, the wife, the secretary. Not even Andrea the artist or ad girl. I wanted someone, anyone, to see me. More than anything, it was Richard. Please don't think unkind of me, dear reader. Now, tonight's adventure into the unknown. Shut up and sit down. Sarge and Frenzy from the Sarge Approved Podcast. Uh, if you're not familiar, the Sarge Approved Podcast has a guest every episode featuring uh, people like actors, comedians, uh, survival experts, authors, martial arts experts, basically a whole gamut of badass people. Yes. And you can check out all our episodes on all the podcast platforms, iTunes, Spreaker, uh, Stitcher, Google Play Music, iHeartRadio, um, yeah. you can check us out on all our social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, all the things. It's all at Sarge Approved. Yep. Check it out and we hope you enjoy it. Bye.